Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host, and I know that my listeners out there love a good murder story. I watch you guys. I watch the response on the individual episodes where I talk about a story of murder and mayhem. And there's a group of you out there that really like those episodes, I can tell. I just noticed that some of those episodes seem to get a lot more plays and listens to than some of the other material I put on this podcast. So today, being that it is Friday when this episode comes out, I have a very compelling murder story that happened in the East Leroy and the Athens area in 1848, way back in time. And it took quite a bit to dig this story up and put it all together. And it's a fascinating one. It's more than just a murder story. It's a story about brotherhood, and it's a story about a community, and a very, very sharp axe. So, come along and join me as I unpack this and explain the whole thing to you. Okay, so I came across this story as I have done many times when I'm just doing other research and I see a snippet or a reference to it having had happened somewhere in the past and I make a note of it and then at some point I dive down the rabbit hole and try to find the the nitty gritty details of it. And the farther you go back in time, the harder it is to put these stories together because the newspapers back in 1848 were quite limited and I was very fortunate in this one to find a a fair amount of material to piece it all together. Plus, with doing a little cross-referencing on the old census records, I was able to put the story together even a little bit more, so I know pretty much what happened. So the story begins with a man named James Winter. Now, James was born in Chenango, New York in 1805. Growing up there, he learned the trade of a cooper, which is a maker of wooden barrels. That was a very important trade early on in the early 1800s particularly with milling communities because all the flour that came out of mills were put into wooden barrels. This is before bags of flour came into common use and at that point in time they would have a cooper make wooden barrels and that's how farmers stored flour during the winter months. So he had moved to Marengo Township just outside of the village of Marshall, Michigan in 1836. So he came in with that first wave of pioneers to Michigan. And he came here with his wife, Theodosia, and they were seeking better opportunities in the new Michigan territory, like many of the early pioneers did. Now, he settled in nicely into the growing village of Marshall, and from 1839 to 1842, he managed his own small farm in that area. And in addition to his labors, he worked as a foreman of a large cooper shop in Marshall. And during his time there, he became involved in the community. He even served a one-year term as the coroner in 1841, which was an elected position at that time and didn't require medical training. It was just someone who was the elected official that would arrive when a person died and take charge of 
any investigation and burial the body and that sort of thing in the community. So James would later move to Athens, Michigan. He settled in the Leroy Township area with his family, and he acquired a 10-acre farm. He was um, active in Athens as well as East Leroy, and he continued his work as a cooper on his farm. In 1844, he was elected as the Leroy Township Supervisor, a position that he would serve in for several years. And at this point in history, the township supervisors also served as the justice of the peace in that role. And his election was driven by a spirited and rising Whig party of the time in the area. And um, he would hold that office for many, many years, including the role of postmaster of the Pine Creek Post Office in 1851. And Pine Creek at that time was more of a collection of homes than it was a thriving village. He was also among the first pioneer founders of the Baptist Church in Athens, and he served faithfully as a trustee for many years. So you can kind of get a feeling of who James Winter was. Now, James earned some notoriety within the community as being the first farmer to have a threshing machine. And he purchased that in 1840 and brought it with him from Marshall. It was one of those open cylinder machines, and it required quite a bit of labor to work with it. Many during his time considered it quite disagreeable and even dangerous to work around. However, he was the sort of individual who always was willing to try something new and embrace a difficult task in hopes of future benefit. And it was this tenacious characteristic about him that gained him admiration and respect from members of the community. So James had a brother, and his name was John Winters. And he also immigrated from New York and had settled in the community of East Leroy. He'd established himself on a small farm not far from James's house, separated by a small forest of bur oak trees and scrub pines. Despite being older than James by a few years, John was a man of seemingly opposite character to his brother. Where James was openly interested in working with members of the community, John was more guarded and fostered suspicion of others. Despite this, John and James were fairly close as brothers, both having taken the journey to Michigan from their home state of New York around the same period of time. And at the age of 40, John married Miss Lenacy Ludden in November of 1846. And she was 38 years old. Now, she was born in Athens and had grown up there and therefore was a very outgoing and social lady with members of the community. She was very well known in the area. And for the first year of their marriage, it all seemed to be in harmony for the newlyweds. However, in the spring of 1848, John began mentioning to friends within his sphere, in confidence, that he suspected his wife of unfaithfulness. Now, witnesses would later testify that they considered his claims against his wife utterly groundless and dismissed it whenever he would mention it and Several of them said the same thing to John. Nonetheless, John let his suspicions 
boil in his soul, he would become even more and more suspicious of her to the point where he basically created his own reality in regards to his wife. By mid-April, the flames of jealousy had begun to occupy his thoughts continually. Convinced of his wife's treachery, his internal torment caused more ebb than flow in civility towards her. Bitterness entwined with loathing boiled into a barely restrained rage. On April 25th, 1848, he told Linacy that they should both walk over to his brother's house and visit with James and Theodosa and then stay the night. Before leaving for their walk, John picked up his axe and began to carry it with him. He told her that he needed to bring it along so that he could sharpen the blade using the stone at his brother's house. So she didn't think anything of it. On their walk, they took the trail through the woods, which was about a mile or more between the two homesteads. They embarked upon their journey at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The skies were clear, although there was still a late spring chill in the air. The early leaves on the trees were emerging with their familiar green and gold. When they reached the halfway point between the two houses, in the most secluded portion of the trail in the woods, John discreetly drifted back behind his wife, walking along the trail. And he let Linacy take the lead, walking ahead of him. Letting loose his pent-up rage, he then swung the axe at the back of Linacy's skull. The blade struck her with such force that the back of her head cleaved open like a gourd, with the single brutal stroke. Lenacy tumbled headlong into the ground. Whether she cried out in pain or not is not known. Walking up to where she had collapsed just off the trail, John struck her another blow to the side of her head with the flat side of the axe. His wife lay there unmoving with her skull fractured severely, gray matter exposed and protruding through this massive rupture. Her lifeless figure, oblique among the bushes and vines upon the forest floor, he made no effort to bury or conceal her body. He simply walked back the way he had come, abandoning her to the scavengers and decay. She would be discovered at about six o'clock later that same day by a young boy named Putnam, who had been out wandering in the woods as young boys did during that time period. And to his astonishment, this mutilated woman that was lying in the trail was still alive and even moaning a little bit when he made his discovery. With haste, he ran for help. She would at length be moved by neighbors to a doctor's house nearby. And they made her as comfortable as possible. Lenacy was laid in a bed and she would remain in a state that was described as insensible, drifting in and out of consciousness the rest of the night. They were never able to get any kind of uh, coherent statement from her, which is not surprising with a serious head injury that she had. She was still breathing, but was unable to communicate throughout the night, and she writhed the remainder of the evening on that bed. Lenacy Winters ultimately passed away at around 1 o'clock in the morning the next day. 
When Linacy was discovered, township authorities had been notified and a constable was called to investigate. Jonathan Winters, who was the township supervisor and acting justice of the peace, of course, was notified immediately when the incident had happened. And as mentioned earlier, you know, he had the authority to oversee the case in this matter in this township. He was the elected authority in this, at this time period. Now, he could have used his authority to dismiss any investigation or charges against his brother, but instead he stood by his own moral character and he didn't interfere with what the constable did in investigating the crime and they traced the blood trail back to John's house. Perhaps he knew the temperament of his brother or maybe it was the shock of seeing firsthand the mutilated body of his sister-in-law. Whatever it was, he cast aside any personal bond that he may have had with his brother and sustained the integrity of the law and his authority, and he reprimanded the investigation to the county rather than deal with it himself directly as he considered it a conflict of interest. So John Winters was apprehended and found to be in possession of the acts used in the crime. He would be taken to Marshall and held in the county jail, awaiting an inquiry and ultimately a trial. The case of the People versus John Winters would be held in May of that year. Many witnesses for the defense would testify on John's behalf as to his character. Most were relatives, along with a few other citizens who knew him from the Athens community. His brother's reputation, in many respects, had been extended to John over the years. The defense attorney, Mr. Gordon, would attempt to use this testimony in representing his moral character to the jury in hopes of receiving a lesser charge of manslaughter. However, his brother James refused to support his brother in his defense. He had been, like so many of the other members of the community, shocked and appalled at his brother's actions. He was not willing to deny his own morality to ease any punishment that might be forthcoming towards John, should he be pronounced guilty. He was firm on his abstention from the participation in the trial. He basically decided that he was not going to take part in either way, because he was his brother, because he was also the township supervisor, who was essentially the justice of the peace that had deferred this to the county. He was going to sit and not take participation in the trial one way or the other, but he did attend it as a spectator. Now, the prosecutor, Mr. Pratt, despite the defense's best efforts, would present an irrefutable case. He presented the axe, which was the murder weapon. He presented the testimony of the physician who had examined his victim and the boy who found her, as well as the others who carried her in during her final hours. The prosecution also presented witnesses who testified to John's statements concerning his suspicions of infidelity in the weeks prior to the incident. Tales of his orations about his building jealousy in the month preceding the murder would unravel any hope of leniency that he may have clung to at that point in time. The jury would be convinced by the case presented by the prosecution and return only after a very short deliberation with the verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Judge Miles, after expressing a few feelings and impressive remarks, would sentence John Winters 
to solitary confinement as a prisoner, along with hard labor, at the Jackson State Prison for life. John Winters was taken by coach to Jackson the following morning. Now, the citizens who attended the trial from Marshall knew James Winters, and they were all acquaintances of him. And some of them were very prominent members of the Marshall community. And they observed the proceedings as it unfolded. Disturbed as they were at the brutality of the crime, they uniformly gained a renewed honor and respect for James Winters during the process of the trial for standing by his own moral integrity and not supporting his brother's defense team. In fact, from the time his brother was arrested, James made no attempt to interfere with the legal process by the public authorities. He ignored the pleas and promptings from his brother to use his position within the community to help him avoid prosecution and having to face justice. So James had to endure his brother's pleadings to help him and stand by his own moral character. And that's what he decided to do. After the conviction, witnesses to the trial would present a card to James Winters signed by many prominent members of the community expressing sympathy for the distressing circumstances of his brother having committed such a crime. Among the many names who signed were people like Isaac Crary, Charles Gorham, Oliver C. Comstock, Samuel Hall, and Reverend John D. Pierce, all leaders and professionals and successful businessmen in the community, as well as prominent clergy members of the community. If you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts on Marshall, you might recognize some of those names. And there were many other names that were signed on the list. I just read to you some of the prominent ones. And the card's inscription was quite compelling. It read, Whereas the recent trial and conviction of John Winters has necessarily brought deep mortification upon the family and friends of the prisoner, we, the undersigned friends and acquaintances of Mr. James Winters, our respected fellow citizen, cannot in justice refrain from expressing this publicly our deepest and heartfelt sympathy with him at this distressing event, and take this occasion to acknowledge what the public universally concede, the high-minded and honorable course pursued by him to vindicate and sustain the character of the laws in affording every faculty in his power to the authorities to bring to justice and punishment the guilty offender, and that we view it as no ordinary mark of a high-minded, pure, virtuous man, and that such conduct confirms our opinion that he who has thus acted is more than ever entitled to our esteem and confidence, and that he has the moral firmness to withstand the promptings of the natural ties of brotherhood, dear as they are engrafted in the human heart, to perform his duty to God and his fellow man, is indeed an upright citizen and that such acts should receive, as they deserve, the approving voice of the community. And that was the inscription. It's quite moving if you really think about it. So James Winters would go on to serve as a representative of Athens in the Michigan State Legislature from 1853 to 1854. 
In the 1860 census, his trade had been listed as a shoemaker, which is an indication that he moved away from farming and expanded his business interests even further. In 1861, he raised a company of 100 men and became captain of Company E, 6th Michigan Infantry, at the start of the Civil War. He resigned, however, soon after organizing the company due to ill health. Despite this setback, he would carry the title of Captain Winters the rest of his days. His 6th Michigan Infantry Unit would serve victoriously at Baton Rouge and later at Port Hudson in the Civil War. A few years later, he drilled officers for the 13th Michigan Regiment, preparing them also for war. James would continue his trade as a cooper and a shoemaker, as well as a farmer, for many years in Athens. In 1862, his daughter Rosabella was born, and she would grow up in the Athens community. In 1869, James would contribute the chapter A History of Athens, which was published in the Calhoun County Business Directory from 1869 to 1870 under the byline of Captain James Winter. This article detailed much of what is known today about the early founders of the village of Athens. Now, James remained a respected and honorable citizen of the Athens community, and the incident with his brother faded into memory. He again served as Justice of the Peace in 1879, and he passed away in January of 1882. John Winters was incarcerated at Jackson Penitentiary in 1848. Now, he was reported to have attempted escaping during his stay there. However, he was not successful. He remained in solitary confinement, only taken out for hard labor, which was in accordance with his sentence. On November 23, 1859, the officers of the prison solicited Governor Moses Wisner on his behalf to obtain his release, and he was granted a pardon. At that point, he was described as an old man who had been confined to his cell for over 10 years. An interesting note about Governor Wisner is he only served one term as governor. He was the 12th governor of the state of Michigan. In those days, the term for governor was just two years. And he was elected in 1858, and he served from 1859 to 1861. And during his term, there was a bit of a controversy because he pardoned something like 140 to 180 prisoners from the Michigan prison system. And John Winters was one of them, but there was a whole article about all of the other pardons that he gave that year. And I'm not sure what his motivation was, if he was trying to reduce the expense by the state of Michigan and just release older prisoners, or if he was just uh, feeling compassionate more than other governors do. I'm not sure what his story was in that regard. But he certainly pardoned a lot of prisoners in the first year he was in office. And um, I just happened to come across that article because I was looking for the pardon history on another story I was writing about. And that's how I discovered that John Winters had been pardoned. Because the only reference I found prior to that had indicated that he'd escaped. And that was in a biography that I found. And that turned out to not be a very accurate source. I found other non-factual 
statements in that same biography source in other stories. And so I concluded that with accuracy, he was actually still in prison and he served at least 10 or 11 years before he was released. And um, Governor Moses Wisner is the one that pardoned him when they, I guess, when he received the appeal from the officials at the prison. And the description was very limited in the article. John had become pretty withered and old in his cell. You can imagine what that does to an individual in solitary confinement for over a decade. Uh, It ages somebody very quickly, um, as you can imagine. So he was probably in poor health, and um, they decided that he was no longer a threat to anybody. There was no record of him ever returning to Athens or East Leroy following that, and I'm not sure what happened to him uh, following his release from prison. And that is the story of John Winters, the murderer, and James Winters, the respected citizen, in the Athens and East Leroy area. And of course, it was the sad and tragic death of Lenacy Winters. So I found this story a little bit interesting on many levels, the comparing the character of both brothers and the different lives that they led. I think we can all see a little bit of that in our own families, not to say that anybody out there has an axe murder in their family, but you get the idea that, you know, some people in a family behave entirely different than other members of the family and they go in different directions. And uh, sadly, John Winters became a axe murderer, which is really terrible. And uh, James Winters became a prominent member of the community and was well-respected as Captain James Winters in the latter years of his life. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history, looking back at this interesting story from way back when on one of the murders that happened in southwest Michigan. And this story is going to be included in the book that I am working on that I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, and that book is expected to be released in the first quarter of 2024 at the latest, according to my publisher. And I'm in the process of working on the manuscript right now, refining these stories to make sure that all the details are included. And it is a collection of true crime stories and some mysteries from Southwest Michigan, all in the Victorian era. And this is one of the earlier stories in that collection. This happened in 1848, and I believe it'll probably be the second and the least maybe third story in the book. There's a couple of ones that are before it, I believe. I don't have the list in front of me right now, but it is uh, one of the earlier stories that I researched, and it was uh, quite fun to try to put this one together through all the little fragments of details that I was able to find along the way in researching it. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can always uh, leave a review out there or do a rating of some sort on whatever app that you are listening on. If you're using Spotify, there are ways that you can leave a question or answer a question on there, like, what did you think about this episode? And give me your thoughts and comments on that if you have time. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.